Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Would you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12? We'll be reading verses 1 to 8, or I mean 3 to 8. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or... He who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What you all don't know is that uh, about a couple of months ago, I was trying to decide whether I was going to end my years of work in Romans or not, and I decided that I was going to go to the Gospel of John instead. I, 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 I kind of got tired of Romans, right? I didn't, but I did. I didn't want to end didactically. I wanted to end with narrative, you know what I'm saying? And so, and especially the Gospel of John. It's such a beautiful, such a beautiful book. Um, So anyhow, I was talking to Jody and to Max about it and to Mary Lee and Stephen Baker. Oh, Oh, no, buddy. Oh, no. Oh, no. I am not going to leave Romans. And that's what I love about Stephen is Stephen knows what is the right thing and the wrong thing to do. And Joe, I just looked over there and I just did a double take because I thought Joe was sitting. You look like your father. We're happy to have you. We're very sad, but we're happy to have you. So Stephen Baker is our, I I refer to him in the the pastor's meetings as our thus spake Zarathustra. (laughs) That's how I refer to Stephen, because Stephen will tell me what to do. And I find that such a relief, somebody that will get rid of my brain and will just say, no, you're going to do this. So we're still in Romans. That's my way of explaining it. And we're going to be in Romans because Stephen Baker said, I had to. 
Stephen, you have been a gift of God to us from the very first moment. And we love you dearly, and we hope that your wife and your family get better soon. Now, he had reasons, and he gave me the reasons why this is what I had to do. And we're going to hit one of them today. This, this passage of the letter of Romans is so helpful to us. I mean, it's like the Apostle Paul has our number. And so let's get into it. For, through the grace, well, we always have to remember what he's just said. And the Apostle Paul has just gotten done saying to us, uh, present yourselves a living sacrifice, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed Now, how are we supposed to be transformed? In other words, if we're going to avoid having this world press us into its mold, actually, resisting that has nothing to do with masks. Hate to tell you. You know, Christians all over the country think that if they refuse to wear masks, if they don't wear masks, if their elders don't require masks, then they're... They're being transformed. They're showing. No, actually, it has to do with the renewing of your mind. Okay? It has to do with the renewing of your mind. If you're not going to be conformed to this world, it really doesn't have much at all to do with COVID. What it has to do is you learning to think properly. You say, well, that's what I'm doing. I've been reading the Bill of Rights and I've been... No, 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 no. Here's how you do it. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Do you see what's going on here? If we're going to resist being conformed to the world, if we're going to resist being these, uh, what do they call them, the animals? Lemmings. If we're going to resist being lemmings and just being predictable, okay, if that's, then we're going to have our minds transformed. All right? And if we're going to have our minds transformed, it starts with not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Okay? Now, what I like about this is that the Apostle Paul shows us this is a struggle for him because he begins it by saying, for through the grace given to me. And so the Apostle Paul is immediately signing the document saying, I cop the plea. I'm guilty as charged. I think of myself more highly than I ought to think. How do we know that? Because he says, for through the grace given to me. In other words, immediately he says, look, I'm saying this because of God working through me. The Apostle Paul isn't saying, look, I'm a superior creature who has perceptive thoughts and has the chutzpah to to mandate my perceptions, which are sophisticated. I was a student of Gamaliel. I have a degree from Yale, right? 
No, no, no. For the, by the grace, give it to me, I say to you. In other words, he's pointing to God immediately. And I think that's sweet because I think it's a habit. And I think the Apostle Paul is consciously trying not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think large thoughts about God. Okay? But then, when we hear him say that, we have to recognize what was the grace given to the Apostle Paul. Well, the grace was apostolic authority. (laughs) So what to him is a confession of him being nothing and God's grace being everything, to us is a mandate to submit to him. Isn't that weird how as he says, grace of God, we think apostolic authority because that's the grace that God gave to him. For through the grace given to me, I say to whom? To your wife? To your children? To your parents? Who is he saying what he's about to say to? He's saying it to everyone. Every single one of us. Me? Tim, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Now, typically, with a dude like me preaching in the Midwest who's from Philadelphia, all of you are prepared to say, yeah, that's what he needs. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, Tim. Get off your high horse. We don't need chutzpah, we just need general suggestions. Maybe you're the only one that knows the word. (laughs) It's Yiddish. And I don't know a synonym. Huh? Yeah, it is a good word, and I kind of define it. What would you say? Gusto, yeah. A certain braggadocio with the gusto. Pushy. Philadelphia. I think Philadelphia does it, right? But he doesn't just say it to Tim, he says it to you. And the truth is, every one of us has a tendency to think of himself, herself, more highly than we ought to think. All of us. Now, the minute I, the minute I began to think about preaching this, I thought, okay, so people that are loud, people that are pushy, people that are educated, people that have sophisticated degrees, sophisticated positions, they need this, right? I mean, we're all going to agree to that. We're all going to recognize that physicians and lawyers and engineers uh, do have a certain propensity to think more highly of themselves than they ought to, right? But what about you? Why does the apostle say everyone? Okay, well, listen, Uh, immediately my mind went to thinking about the levels of um, respect and the levels of uh, pride that there are in the Western world today, in our culture. And you have to be very careful 
that you don't fall prey to the common conceit that you are a victim. And using your victimhood as a way of suppressing people who are gifted. (laughs) Because the real strong man in the West today is the victim. And he oppresses everyone with his victimhood. He is the, well, depending on the queen, the king of pain. He is the one who has been robbed of what he deserved. He is the one who was not loved as he should be. He was the one that nobody understood. He was the one that, he's the king of pain. And there is nothing that can stand against victimhood in the Western world today. Nothing. And so if you think that because you are Uriah Heepish, anybody read Dickens? You know, he's just always, I'm not here, I'm nothing. Oh, here, let me be nothing. You know, I have nothingness to give to you. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm not worthy to even be noticed. My mama don't love me. My papa don't love me. My wife is a shrew. My husband is a you-know-what, you know. And my children don't, don't, they don't even know I exist. After all the years, and I, 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 I'm pathetic. And you better remember that. Now, which is stronger, a lawyer or a physician or that person? And let me tell you on Facebook, that person is the strongest person. Because they oppress everybody with their pain. Are you all with me? Come on. Now, you might think that it's just because I'm preaching in 2021 that I would say this, right? You would think, well, that's an odd spin to put on this text. I used to be at a church where every time I get done preaching, they'd come up to me and say, that wasn't in the text. And so I would get really good at reading all the commentaries before I went in the pulpit. And then I would be able to read it to them when they said it wasn't in the text. So, okay, you're thinking that what I just said about weakness being the real strength, it's not in the text, right? Okay, this is from this is from the Scottish commentator, the Scottish pastor, uh, Robert Haldane, from about what 150 years ago, and this is what he says on this. He says, "To this, all are naturally prone to think more highly of themselves than they ought to." He says, "We all have a habit of doing that. Everybody." Then he says, but there is an opposite error, assuming the semblance of obedience to this exhortation. So he says, there's an opposite way of approaching the text that makes you look as if you're submitting to the command here in in scripture. And he says, this error ought to be equally avoided. This is an affectation. All right, so he's saying that the opposite error is an affectation. Now, what is an affectation? 
I have to be careful here. I always pick on my grandchildren. So I, I will not pick on my grandchildren this morning, okay? Uh, I used to wear bow ties. That's an affectation. It's, it's presenting yourself in a way that is like aspirational. What I'd like people to think about me is that I'm like C. Everett Koop who wore bow ties. Did you know that? You know? I remember talking to Adam about it. Uh, one of the reasons Koop wore bow ties was that it didn't get in his way when he was working on people. You know, the way a tie does. So he had just a bow tie. Bow ties, I would say, are pretty much uh, affectations. Now, what else are affectations? Well, you know, all, you know these guys that are very weak? You know, these w- very weak guys, you know? But they have humongous beards. That's an affectation. Okay? Bling, by definition, is affectation. Um, Taylor, our youngest son, uh, when he left our home, he began to uh, dress in a certain way and drive certain vehicles that led one to believe that he was actually a cowboy. He wasn't. That's an affectation. Now, you got the idea. Okay, affectations, he says... To be avoided is an affectation of humility by speaking of oneself contemptuously. So he says, we cop a posture of submitting to the text here by putting on a show of contempt for ourselves, okay? And then he says, remember this is 150 years ago, he says, This species of hypocrisy ought to be avoided. When an author speaks of his poor abilities and tells us he is the most unfit man for the work he has undertaken, he is generally insincere. But if not insincere, he must be unwise. For God never requires us to exercise a talent which he has not bestowed on us. Think soberly. Christians are here directed to make a sound and moderate estimate of their own gifts which will persevere, preserve them from both extremes. On the one hand, from overrating and on the other hand, from unduly depreciating their attainments or talents. Okay? Is this all clear to us? So every one of us has a way of getting a leg up on other people. And some of us, it's by being the queen of pain. Others of us, it's by thinking that we're superior. And everything we do is noblesse oblige. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Now, what does that command from the Apostle Paul have in it? It has in it a negative. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to. 
Why would the Apostle Paul begin this section with a negative? I beseech you, therefore, you present your bodies a living sacrifice and be, be, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And here he says that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Listen, every one of us takes umbrage is really angry when we're told not to do something. We don't like to be told not to do something. And many of you are raising your children, attempting to never tell them no, but always yes, but yes in such a, such a winsome way. And that's what most of the evangelism of the last century has been. An attempt to say yes in a very winsome way. And it's ridiculous. Evangelism is not getting people to see even better the joys that God intends to give them than they had already seen it. And that's what evangelism has largely become. And it's very old, this thing. We do not like to be told no. But that's how it begins. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That must mean that you have a tendency to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Right? Right? And when this comes up, you know who I always think about? Some of you know. I always think about my son Taylor. Playing soccer. I went to every practice, every game, for I don't know how many years sat there quietly, and I watched him fail again and again and again. I mean, you know, they had a winning record and all this, you know. But the thing that I particularly noticed is that when they got done a game where they'd lost, inevitably, Taylor would act as if they had won, really, and that there was an error in the scorekeeping. And this built up in me, okay? It just built and built and built and built and built for years. And then finally, his final year of playing soccer, we were on the north side of Indy, and it was a tournament, or whatever you call them. And they were, I think, like playing, I don't know, but it was close. They had risen high, and then they played this team, and they lost. We got in the car to leave. It was on the north side of Indy, up where your house used to be, you know, the house. And we're driving along the road, and Taylor says to me, we were the better team. And something in me just snapped. It just snapped. And I was like, are you serious? I said, Taylor, I don't mean to quibble over little matters, but who won? <laughs> he said, well, they won, but we were the better team. I said, Taylor, something in me snapped again. I said, Taylor, who lost? Well, we lost, but we were the better team, you know. <laughs> you know oh. 
I'm telling you, every disappointment I had with my son came to a boil at that moment. It was like our lives had been leading up to that moment, you know. And I was like, Taylor, do you ever in your life see yourself as you are? Ever. You live in a fantasy. You don't have a clue who you are. And who you are doesn't seem to matter to you. Well, we were the better team. It went on and on and on. I got so mad, I pulled off on the shoulder and stopped. And I didn't hit him. I didn't hit him. But oh, did I hit the armrest. Screaming. Taylor, you don't know yourself. You don't know yourself. Stop. Stop. He spent all his time on Facebook. And he did not know himself. I often have a, a, a picture in my mind as I preach to you of you standing before God at the judgment seat. And an awful lot of us will be there to explain to God how privileged he is to have us. Or we'll have excuses that our mama didn't love us and our papa didn't love us and we were abused and we were black and we were Chinese and we were a woman and, and all this stuff. And God is God and we are not, okay? And God says to us through apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't do it. Okay? I know it's hard today. I know the comparisons that we go through are awful. Every single thing about our identity is a way that we get a leg up on other people. And if we don't talk about it publicly, that's only because we're sophisticated and know what an ass other people are who do talk about it publicly. And so even in that, we're proud. Well, I don't raise my hands. Those people, somebody said to me afterwards that they, that they don't, that, that, they, that they don't want, that they don't put like under anything I post on Facebook because they don't want people to think that they're brown nosing me. Well, that's sophisticated. <laughs> you know? I'll tell you what, how about if I don't put anything up on Facebook and then you won't be tempted? And, you know, honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, how about, if, how about if I preach from the balcony so that you don't see me? Because, I mean, in a, in a community where the music school is so oppressively present everywhere and the vanity of musicians is so awful, 
you know, how about if we have the one church where the preacher hides himself and then nobody can accuse me of being vain? And of course, those of you who have been here for a while know that's precisely what Carol wanted to do. Carol did not want any of the musicians up front. She wanted the choir in the back, in the balcony. And I kept saying, no, we need you to lead us. No, no, no. We should be nothing and nothing below nothing. And I kept trying to convince Carol, but Carol was not to be convinced. I don't know if you've ever noticed that ever. But anyhow, she... Huh? Well, are you sure? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, our musicians, yeah. Marcus Cavacanti wouldn't play his guitar in worship, the Brazilian dude, because he said that people treat guitarists like gods. And so he was unwilling to use his guitar in worship. Don wanted to quit singing because she said all singing is vanity and self-promotion. You remember that? And I mean, I could go through all our musicians, and so I began to preach from the balcony. I didn't. Because all of a sudden, Carol had a principle for me to be up front. So in other words, self-abnegation is what works for her, but self-promotion is what the pastor is paid to do. But you guys, listen. Listen, this is very simple. How many sermons would be given by pastors if we looked inside ourselves and saw our pride and decided to discipline it by not preaching. You've never thought about the degree to which your leaders have to mourn their sins as they lead. You don't think about that. I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, okay? But to think so as to have sound judgment. Now listen, you take for granted the fact that that word judgment is in there. It's just assumed that you are to judge. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And I always tell people, and you remember what the next thing Jesus says is, Do any of you remember? The next thing he says is, don't cast your pearls before swine. (laughs) Which, if Jesus can be funny, I think that's funny. You know, because of course, if you're going to not cast your pearls before swine, you have to have a judgment as to who is swine. And that's not positive among Jews. And so there are places where we must not judge, but there are also places where we are to judge. And this is one of those places where it says, think so as to have sound judgment. Now, what is sound judgment? Proper judgment, true judgment, appropriate judgment, accurate judgment. So in opposition to us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, We are to judge ourselves accurately, okay? Does this make sense? So it starts with a negative, but then it gives us a positive. The positive is make an accurate judgment about yourself. Now, this accurate judgment about yourself 
is um, essential to know God. As long as we don't have an accurate judgment about ourselves, we will not know God. It is impossible to have any knowledge of God until you have an accurate judgment of yourself. Okay? Do you remember how John Calvin begins his institutes? So the institutes is this monumental work that you laugh and think that pastors have to read. But remember, the Institutes was written by Calvin back 500 years ago to help the commoner to understand Scripture. And he begins that work with this. He says, these are the first words of the Institute. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. All the wisdom that is accurate consists of knowing God and knowing ourselves. Okay? Those are the first words of the Institutes. Then he says, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves. In other words, the minute we look at ourselves, we realize God exists and that we live and move in God. All right? You remember, that's what the Apostle Paul said to the sophisticates in Athens, in the Areopagus. They had temples and altars to a humongous number of gods on every street corner, including an unknown God, just to be safe. And he proclaimed there was one God. And then he said, in him we live and move and have our being. And so Calvin here is quoting the Apostle Paul in Athens. And he says, in whom he lives and moves. And then he says, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And then listen to this. And we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. Isn't that sweet? We can't begin to know God until we don't like ourselves. And I mean to tell you, if I were to go around this church right now and ask you, where have you gotten your knowledge of God? <laughs> Every single one of you would say, because I don't like myself. And I've had to go to God to see something I like. I'm no exception. <laughs> Trust me. What a relief it is to go to God.
this last week I went up to the church Mary Lee and I spent the first eight and a half, nine years of ministry at up in Partyville, Wisconsin, just north of Madison. And it was to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the church that the people there and I and others planted. And, you know, I, I did not know what was going to happen up there. I thought it was going to be, you know, like birthday cake. You know, that we'd all get to blow the candles out and, <laughs> you know, celebrate. I mean, that's what it was supposed to be, a celebration, you know? So as a part of the celebration, it was a time to ask questions from the floor, you know, from the congregation. And one of the men who had been an elder in that church said to me, tell the story of Sam Westra. Well, that was the story I told you a couple months ago about the very tall, older Dutchman with his cane. You remember that story? Enough! Enough! And so I told the story. And I want you to know that in my understanding of that church today, that Sunday annual meeting and Sam Westra are the very cornerstone and foundation. Okay? And I told it in a way that glorified God. You know, Sam never said anything, ever. But God raised him up for that moment. And Sam condemns sin. But then afterwards, a man came up to me and just right in my face. I hadn't met him. I didn't know who he was. And he was like, I'll have you know that we have been working hard to heal. And then you did that. And do you know what you did? And he was just condemning me right and left. And I thought, whoa, that's a different way of understanding that. And I was caught flat-footed. I didn't, I just, yikes. I had been reading the, um, I had been reading the uh, story of Israelites, of Moses dying, God burying them, and then them entering the promised land in my reading. And I looked at him and I said, you really think that we should remove the, the negative things? from God's work among us and just tell the positive things. I mean, you understand, that's, that's what he thought, you know? And I said, but if we did that, I said, there wouldn't be any stories in the Old Testament. There wouldn't be any stories. If we're just gonna tell the things that were like smelled good and were pink. Later, I got to think about it. I've been thinking about it from that moment to this. I wake up at night, think about it. Now, I'll get back to me. But first, a little thing about this issue. We don't like to be told no. And we don't want to remind ourselves and others of the time we were told no, even if that's the time that God did his greatest work in us. Are you with me? We want to leave that stuff behind, you know? And... I got thinking about it, and I thought, imagine if the Bible had told us the story of the conquest of Canaan. 
and the entry of the promised land and left out Jericho? What would the story of the Jews, the Hebrews, taking over the promised land be without Jericho? Huh? As a matter of fact, we wouldn't be able to sing Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. I mean, what on earth are we teaching children to sing that song for? It's so negative. It's so, honestly, bloody. And it's so sexual. Rahab and red, I mean, how ironic. The court. And then you've got Achan. I mean, really, did we have to do Achan? He steals from God. And God makes him go through this whole, like, public morality play. You know, bring the tribe, bring the family, bring the clan, bring everybody. And then Achan is standing there. And then he says, give glory to God and tell us. And it's like, glory to God. How does it give glory to God? I don't see any glory to God in any of this. So Achan gives glory to God. And can we just drop it there? I mean, honestly, you're going to tell that story on the anniversary of entering the promised land? But God is very specific in saying that the Israelites then stoned Achan. But it doesn't just say Achan. His entire family, including his wife and his children. Can we leave it there? No, no, no. First, we have to burn them all and then pile stones on top of them as a memorial. Come on, people. God knows who we are. God is not fooled by our Facebook profile by our Instagram. And the one who is loved by God is the one whose sin is exposed. And the one who is not loved by God is the one whose sin is hidden. Because the one whose sin is exposed has to give it up. I've heard parents say that so many times, and I think it's one of the sweetest things that I hear from parents. Parents will talk about their particular children. I don't know if your parents do this, but there's always at least one child, and it doesn't matter how much they try to hide their sin. It always comes out. And I've heard parents say over and over again, God loves you so much to that child because God never lets you get away with anything. And it is so sweet because then we can just breathe and just give up trying to burnish our image. Yeah, you know, I was trying to hide it, but that is who I am. I have to admit, I have a certain resemblance, a certain verisimilitude. That be me. That be me. God has my number. So here's the end of the story. 
You could imagine going up there and thinking that it was going to be a party and then having it rained on brought me right back down as to who I was. Do you understand that? There was no glory. All of a sudden, God helped me have a proper understanding of myself. And isn't that often the way he does it? Right at the moment where you're ready to be triumphant, you get put at the back of the line, right? Have you experienced this? You know what I'm talking about. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but we're to have to think with sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, that means that thinking with sound judgment means that we are going to see how much faith God has given us. Okay? And that means that some of us will see that God has not given us much I mean, that's clearly what it's saying. As each has been allotted faith by God. Allotting is proportioning. Allotting is dividing up. And God gives some people lots of faith and God gives other people very small amounts of faith. Okay? Now, I know that it makes sense that all of us would want to think about who God has given a lot of faith to. And so if I were to be asked who has a lot of faith, I could name a lot of people, but you know who I would start with? I would start with Rita Cuffey, but you don't know her. And so I'm going to tell you that Max Carell is the man that gives me faith. And many of you have been given faith by Max. God has given Max much faith. I think we'd all agree to that. And so part of me thinking with proper judgment about myself is looking around and seeing in the matter of faith itself, who's been given a lot of faith? And there's nothing wrong with that. Nobody took objection to me saying Max had a lot of faith, right? I mean, it's great that God has put that man in our church. You know? But, but watch out now. It also requires you to recognize that God has not given you much faith. <laughs> and somehow that doesn't feel as pious. You know, to properly diagnose the degree of faith that God has given me. You know? Now you think, oh, well, I'm willing to admit I don't have much faith. I say, oh, you are. You sure of that, huh? Huh? You're like my son Taylor, right? You're, you're sure that you're okay with having an accurate view of yourself, even if it is that they beat you because they're better at soccer than you are. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I I love Max giving me strength because of his faith. And I admit I need it. Okay. 
So, so when Jody gets up and leads worship and he puts his hands up in the air, do you admit you don't have much faith and do you do what Jody tells you to do? Huh? Huh? I mean, you just said you don't have much faith, right? And so, because you don't have much faith, you're so thankful for Jody having the faith to lift his hands. And, and you just get on the bandwagon behind him because you want him to give you strength, and that's an area you're weak. And so he gives you strength, right? I mean, come on, people. <laughs> you know. We want to think of faith as being sort of uh, ethereal, kind of cloudy, misty, vaporous, kind of airy, kind of... Listen, if you're going to have a proper understanding of your gifts and which gifts God's given to you and which gifts God hasn't given you, that does not begin until you ask other people to give you their gift. Do you understand me? You cannot know how important faith is for the Christian life and that you're weak without asking other people to give you faith, to strengthen your faith. And you say, well, that has nothing to do with lifting hands. And I say, oh, how about kneeling? We have faith to reclaim a tradition that was absolutely everywhere in the church for thousands of years. And that's kneeling. But do you kneel? Well, that's legalism. Okay, fine. Raising hands is legalism. Kneeling is legalism. How about wearing masks? Is that legalism? You say, oh, there you go, Tim. Would you just shut up about COVID? I say, well, you know, I think this last year what's happened is everybody's lost their mind. Every church, every group of Christians in the country has lost their minds and everybody's absolutely sure, certain that they're right and nobody is willing for their elders to make a decision. Either way. And so you don't have much faith but the elders have faith to lead. And then you're like, heck no, we won't go. Okay, it doesn't have to do with mass, I know, I know. And it doesn't have to do with kneeling and it doesn't have to do with raising hands. And so precisely what does it have to do with? And you say, well, it has to do with things like, um, like, you know, no, I don't know what. Being nice to people, is that what you said? Yeah, being nice to people. Yeah, it does have to do with being nice to people. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm not Asian. I mean, you get it, right? Asians are nice to people. Nobody's ever accused Americans of being nice to people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're not nice to people. 
will help people. Now listen, I could go from faith to the gift of singing. I could go from the gift of singing to the gift of leading. I could go from leading to teaching, from teaching to healing, from healing to mercy, from mercy to giving. I could go through all the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives the church. And where you're weak, you will not ask another Christian to help you if it's their strength. You will just try to cop a posture as not really being weak there. And it was actually a decision I made very, very at a tender age. that I'd never lift my hands in worship because that would be bragging about my spirituality. And it's a, it's a my weakness is a principle. It is... It is a deeply held principle, my weakness. Yes, sir. We hate to ask other Christians to be a thumb for us because we're a foot. To be an eye for us because we're an ear. But there's nothing undignified about being a thumb. And if the little finger were to decide to vote off the island, the thumb, where would the little finger be? God has caused us to lack faith, to lack teaching, to lack leadership, because he wants us to go to other people and ask them to give us what they have. And why? Well, because it humbles us. Does that make sense to you? It humbles you to have to have me preach to you. Have you noticed that? I like that smile. That was a good smile. Yeah, have you noticed? Yeah. Who does he think he is? Anyhow. When Mary Lee and I were growing up, we went to college church in Wheaton, and in that church was a tracker organ. Do any of you know what a tracker organ is? A tracker organ is an organ, well, you know what a tracker organ is, don't you? Yeah. Among organists, there's a certain snobbery that says that there should be no such thing as an electrical connection between the stops and the pipes, that it should all be manual, mechanistic. The only thing on that organ that was electric was the blower, okay? And so there was this tracker organ, and it was played by the professor of piano over at the conservatory at Wheaton College. And he was humble. He was beautiful, Reg Garrick. And we had a choir and choir director like you wouldn't believe. And we sang. And we had an incredible pianist. But about every nine months to year, during the anthem, there would be a solo. And the solo would be sung by a soprano who sounded like a screech owl. I mean, it was awful. You know, the octaves in between the warbling. You know? And it just, the tone wasn't good. Nothing about it was good. And the kids knew it. 
our parents never said anything about it, but the kids were like, yikes. So why did she sing solos? Do you have any idea? Do you think the choir director wanted her to sing solos? No. Why did she sing solos? She sang solos because she was convinced that that was the gift God had given her for the building up of the church. And nobody said no to her. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it only happened every, you know, nine months. You know, you can live through that. But do you know how often that's the case that churches fighting is because nobody will say no to somebody who resents the fact that they don't have the gift of being an elder? Are you with me? Or more likely, the wife of the man who isn't an elder resents the fact that another wife's husband is an elder. <laughs> you know, that's actually more often. Listen, God loves for us to be dependent on each other. God delights in his people loving one another. And what man loves another man who doesn't ask for his help? Charlie is getting ready to die. And this week he's been in bed most of the time because that's the only place that he can stand his pain. So I went over to see him. And I leaned over and gave him a kiss, you know. We're, we're past the age of being men. We're back to little boys. And I gave him a kiss, and he said, hey, he said, I, I, I have a request to make of you. And I said, sure, Charlie, what is it? And he said, I want you to bring that pole saw you have over here. And you may use it, but I will tell you what to do with it. And on one level, I was just like, oh, Charlie, get over it. You know, honestly, are we still at that point? You know, he will tell me what to do. But you realize what's going on there. The greatest gift Charlie can give right now is asking another member of the body to do something for him. And this at a point where everything is being done for him. So a lot of you men are jealous right now because Charlie hasn't asked you to do anything. Well, that's how great I am. The Apostle Paul twice for, goes on about the body. And he talks about thumbs, ears, feet. He talks about the parts of the body that we cover up with clothing, the parts that are visible. And he says, look, in your body, you're not fighting. It, your heart doesn't try to cut off blood to your thumb. And your thumb doesn't say it doesn't need the heart. And the foot doesn't try to be an eye. And then he says, you are the body of Christ. And he has given all these gifts to the body. And so celebrate each other's gifts. 
ask people to help you. Confess your weakness. Don't think about yourself. Think about giving a chance for somebody else's gifts to bring them glory and through them God. Find opportunities for other people in the church to glorify God by using the gift that he's given them. Don't be a hog. Don't try to have a corner on teaching. You understand? Look for opportunities for other people in the body to shine. You imagine if your heart started pouting and didn't beat as strong when somebody looked at a woman and said, you're beautiful. And the heart said, they don't say me here. I am the one everybody takes for granted. I'm deep in the chest. And I beep, 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 beep. And then they say she's pretty. You know, that's so obnoxious. You know the face. You know, the face is always out there. I resent the face. I'm not going to beat as hard anymore. I mean, that's what we're like in the church, you know. It's like, well, they didn't notice me, so I'm going to go home without noticing them. Oh, knock your socks off. You had an opportunity to give another Christian a chance to shine. And as they shine, God shines. In the first service, I talked about Lucy. (coughs) And I mentioned how Lucy, she wouldn't like this, but have you noticed how much attention Lucy calls to herself by skulking everywhere she goes? She's like, you never see her. Has anybody here ever seen Lucy? No, none of us ever have. (laughs) You know? And that woman is drop-dead gorgeous. Do you know that I never shop at Target anymore? You know where that started? It started about 20 years ago when Lucy told me that they'd accused her of doing something. And that moment, I was done with Target. I thought, are you kidding me? Lucy, she was an employee. How tender are you to the people that hide in this church? Do you carry them in your hearts? Do you know them? Do you know what I think is one of the most beautiful things demonstrating the parts of the body that I have had happen this past week? So Joe died. And we miss him, right? We miss Joe, right? So we're over there, just a few of us, and all the EMTs, and the coroner shows up, and sheriff's deputy, everybody's there. And somehow it came out very quickly that the day before, that new family at our church I can't remember their names. He's short, and they've got those handsome young boys. I can't remember, but you know, they're new. They don't matter. You know what I'm saying. New people don't matter. But I found out the day before that that family, whoever they are, that they had gone over to visit Joe and Eleanor. Well, the minute I heard that, I thought, 
Are you serious? Josh and Joe. And you say, well, who's Josh? Well, if you don't know, that's your problem. You've had a couple months to find out now. But if I were to think for 24 hours straight about who I wanted to go visit Joe and who I wanted Joe to have visit him, I would every hour on the hour have said, Josh and Joe. Perfect. Joe has what Josh needs and Josh has what Joe needs. Perfect. But then I got thinking about Eleanor and she said she sat inside the house and talked to Zakia, who is Josh's wife. I thought, oh my goodness, oh yes. Two military men, gone. Two wives, as soon as Joe passes, Eleanor is in control. And when she's questioned, she says, I'm a Navy wife. And so here this Navy wife is talking to a Marine wife. And then Eleanor was raised in India. And Zakia is Bangladeshi. Oh, yeah, buddy. This is beautiful. When they were there, Joe and Josh were outside working on wood and being men. I've said that when Charlie passes with Adam and Joe and Charlie gone, there will be, I said this to Charlie yesterday, there will be no manhood left in this church. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and, and Charlie looked at me and he said, well, I guess you're going to have to step up. <laughs> Which is just great, you know. <clears throat> and then when, when Joe left, I mean, when Josh left, Joe sent the, 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 the wood splitter home because he was concerned that Josh get his wood up to snuff before winter comes. And you know, we take that kind of stuff for granted. I do not take anything for granted in the body of Christ. Not one small thing. And if I don't notice, God does. And you have been given gifts. You have not just been given weaknesses. And it is your obligation to love God's people with your gift. And I don't give a rip if you're a big tell. You give your big tell. Now I want to end by reading something that I could not help but have in my heart today about this text and being different parts of the body and having a sober estimate of ourselves 
and having a willingness to recognize what other people have to give us. And I want to read this. This is John Dunn, For Whom the Bell Tolls. No man is an island entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manor of thine own or of thine friends were a manor a house. In other words, take a clod, take a promontory, take a house, your house, their house. Cut it off and Europe is the poor. Each man's death diminishes me. For I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. So Jez's gone. He's gone. He's in a better place. But there is not one of us who doesn't miss him. Even our little children who didn't know him. There is less manhood in this place. We have been diminished. And so it's time for you to step up and fill Joe's place, just like Charlie said. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Think soberly. Each of you according to the apportionment, the division of faith that God has given you, okay? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Joe. For Eleanor, who was such a um, submissive wife to her husband in his weakness as well as his strength. We thank you for his unerring discernment of character. We pray, Father, as we go through the work in the coming week or two of of mourning him and burying him, that you will give us men who will step into the place he held among us, and that we will see the family likeness, and that you will be pleased to heal our grief. We pray especially for Joey and for Eleanor and their family, that you will use us to comfort them and that we will speak to them of the gifts that we received from this man of God. We pray this in Jesus' name.